Welcome to the Earn Your Edge podcast. I'm Corey Lumberg from Altus Performance. And before we dig in, quick thanks to everybody that has signed up, gone through the online course that we launched a couple weeks ago, Prime to Perform. Thank you for sending the DMs, the emails. We love the feedback. It's been fun even getting a chance to chat with a few of you as you develop your tournament readiness blueprint. If you're a tournament player, go check it out, altusacademy.teachable.com. And this week, we've got a chat that serves as a pretty good complement to that subject material. We are joined by Dr. Michael Gervais, and this was one of the best, the most anticipated conversations that Cam and I have had in a long time. Michael is a voice that we trust over any other in the world of sports psychology. He is a world-renowned high-performance psychologist. He's got over 20 years of experience in the field working with world-leading performers, and his job is mission is to help those athletes thrive in pressure-packed environments. And he does that for all kinds of athletes, whether it be Seattle Seahawks, Olympic medalists, MVPs from pretty much every sport, or even corporate leaders. And he's been an incredible resource to us, as is his podcast, Finding Mastery, that we've listened to for a long time and recommended before. Uh, He's got a new Audible original with Pete Carroll called Compete to Create that we'd highly recommend. We dig into that a little bit along with a lot of really important ideas in this chat. And most importantly, the idea that our performance psychology is something that we can train. We all have real agency in improving our mental skills. And they're just that, they're skills. We can evaluate them, assess them, and ultimately we can influence them with the right kind of work and intention. And Michael outlines those nine skills in this chat, and we anticipate that this will have a big impact on you as you listen. It did for us as soon as we got off the call with Michael, I told Cam, talking to him, it's just aspirational. Not only is he incredibly educated and a leader in his field, but He communicates all that research in a way that is really accessible. It's really easily applied to our lives. And just his passion and enthusiasm for helping other people perform their very best is something that I think all coaches should emulate. Uh, It certainly invigorated us. I'm hopeful it does for you as well. So please enjoy episode 74 of the Earn Your Edge podcast with Dr. Michael Gervais. Anytime anyone ever asks me to to point them in a direction of resource as it pertains to psychological skills and performing at a high level, I point them to you. And it's been awfully difficult pointing them in a direction other than your podcast, Finding Mastery, of which I've listened to everyone and many of them on multiple occasions. But it's becoming easier, particularly with the launch of Compete to Create, the Audible original. So I thought that might be a good place to start, given that that's... Um, probably the easiest point of access for someone that's new to learning about you to understand what this launch is, this Audible original is, and then we'll meander and weave our way through to the depths of conversation about high performance and about the psychological skills that kind of scaffold around the physical stuff that these high performers, at least in our world, in the world of golf, use to the best of their ability to do some amazing stuff on TV on Sundays. I love it. Every part of it. I mean, that's been kind of my life mission as well. So every part of that's rad. So let's go to Compete to Create. Tell us about it. Okay. So let's do a little bit of a story to get into kind of how it unfolded is that I'm up at the Seattle Seahawks working with the team. Coach Carroll comes flying out of his office and he says, Mike, can you feel what's happening? And what he was referring to was a hundred and some alpha competitors pointing their noses in the same direction. Now, this is about three, two months before we're heading into the Super Bowl, right? We didn't know, no one knows that they're going to the Super Bowl, but it was like electricity that was happening. And I was like, yeah. 
And he says, um, do you think anyone outside of sport would be interested in what we're doing? So what he was talking about in that moment was, if I could take a, a moment and talk about his genius for a moment, he's got lots of capabilities here, but one of them is he has a deep and rich understanding of how to create an ecosystem where people can do their very best work. And that's rare. That is a rare thing. And we throw around this word like it's like it doesn't have the tenor that I would hope, but we call it culture. And co- what culture really is, though, it's the artifact of relationships. And so the Seattle Seahawks, what we've tried to create up there is a relationship-based organization. And so back to the story, what he was talking about was what he was doing, which is creating that uh, relationship-based organization, great X's and O's that support all the stuff uh, that we're talking about. And then my efforts were on helping to train the athletes and the coaches who want to be their very best. So one plus one was something like 11. And I said, I said, I, I don't know. And, and he looks, he goes, let's just write it down. And so kind of on the back of a napkin, we figured out like, what are the shared practices that he and I were doing together? And so, you know, he's got 40 years in the field. I've got 20 some in the field. And what were the things we were doing together that were creating this really unique experience that both of us were really excited about? And so that back of a napkin turned into a couple pages of paper, and then it turned into a slide deck. And we started kicking around some of these concepts with some enterprise companies, one in particular, Microsoft. And they really helped us understand that migration from sport to business. So fast forward three years, we trained at just Microsoft. We've got a handful of clients, but that's certainly our tall tent pole, is we've trained over 40,000 of their employees at eight hours a person. I mean, think about that. So Microsoft from CEO to uh, their executive team, all the way throughout cascading throughout the organization, they've said, right, the mind is really important. (laughs) And we love how you're helping the men and women in our organization use their mind to live a life of not only flourishing, but performance on top of it. And so that was kind of it. And so that's where it kicked off this um, nice little business force. And that business is called Compete to Create. We've now created some escape velocity from like working inside of the uh, front row view with one of the most amazing tech companies in the world, most amazing companies in the world right now. So that we've, they've helped us spin off and to have a courses that are available for the rest of the world. And so we're really excited about what we're doing there. And then what sits right underneath of that in tandem, if you will, is this Audible original that we did. It's the same title, it's called Compete to Create, and it's an approach to living and leading authentically. It's in a six hour audio original where Coach and I whisper into your ear about <laughs> the science and the stories of how to train your mind to you know, find your very best. And so that's a long story to get to a place that says, um, you guys know this better than anybody, there's only three things you can train as humans. You can train your craft, you can train your body, and you can train your mind. Best of the best, the best, the half percenters, you know, in that small, rare, thin herd, dimly lit, navigated space, people are not leaving the mind up to chance. And those that are, I mean, they're freaks. They can roll out of bed, have a six pack, you know, and uh, eat eat some pizza and whatever, and jump 42 inches and run a four, two flat, you know, like, I mean, they're just freaks. That's not what most people are designed as, you know, most of us need to train our mind. 
Well, I think that the pillars of Compete to Great, and I will speak for Cam, we enjoyed it so much. It obviously resonates and aligns with so much that we think is important. And I want to dig into that, but I want to go back to those team rooms in Seattle. And I told you I'm a 49ers fan. This, this pains me to say, but Wait, I, could, I couldn't hear you. I, yeah. What's that? No, yeah, exactly. <laughs> But you, you you talk about the culture that's there, and you've got guys like Russell Wilson and, and Richard Sherman, who's now in our team room. But at that time, I assume that there's some athletes and some individuals who bring some innate traits to the table. They already have some mental superpowers. And, and Cameron and I in these conversations talk a lot about, well, what are those superpowers? What are the one, two, or three things that are foundational to these high performers that before they get into this amazing culture – they're bringing to the table and contributing to that culture themselves. And I wonder, and, and this is a conversation that we have amongst coaches all the time, is which of those can we influence in the work that we do with them? And which are, and this is always the bad news of, are there some of those that you either have or you don't have that we don't as coaches or with what you do, don't have as much influence on as maybe some other skills that we can help them with? That's really cool. And you know what I appreciate about you guys is that you understand the fabric of high performance. You know, you're living it, you're breathing it. It is the water that you swim in. And so that question is so nuanced. And let me start by saying something less nuanced (laughs) to level set a little bit is that, you know, as a framework, it's environment, DNA, and work you know, like effort uh, towards development. So it's like there are capacities that we all have. There are ceilings and floors to our abilities. And it is interdynamic. So I just want to start with those nuances. But let me let me level set by saying you can help somebody change their posture. That's possible. That's hard. You could also help somebody change their social security number. That is possible. That's really hard. <laughs> you know, like how much work do you want to put into this? And so Here's the way I think about your question is that the tip of the arrow, folks, they make us all better. And so people come into the club, they're better at A, B, and C than anyone else in the world. And it requires the rest of us to go, oh, look at that. That's special. You know, let's create as much of a playing field and ahead of them as we can so they can do that thing and be that man or woman that they are working on being. And, you know, how do we line up? as much space and draft behind them, where in that lane, they're making us better. And in another lane, somebody else is making us better. And then, so that really is culture. That is creating the space for people to be themselves at their very best. And so here's here's how I double click under that for you, is that, yes, there's just about everything under the sun that we can train. And there are very few things, and I know this is a bit controversial that I'm saying this, there are very few things that with the right leverage, and I mean that in a healthy way, that we can't get some wiggle room on. That being said, if we think about stacking skills, and let's just do mental, you could do physical only if you wanted for a moment, but let's say we had nine skills that we're working on that are available to all of us, and we say these nine are important. Well, we would try to create some sort of force rank, which is, okay, what are the top three? What are the middle three skills? And then what are that? what's that bottom tier skill? Okay. And let's just say that confidence is like on the top three, but we don't need to do much to help them with confidence. They already have it. It's already world leading, world class. It's already one of their assets. Then the question, the art of coaching comes in, what do we go work on? And so my philosophy is really about an asset-based approach. 
And so I'm not trying to hyper-focus on their least dynamic, most vulnerable chink in the armor. I'm not picking that one. And again, this is philosophical in nature. I'm looking for the top of the bottom or the bottom of the middle skill. Okay, so I'm looking for in that force rank, I'm looking to try to coach up six or seven in the depth chart of skills so they can get some momentum, they can get some wing under their under uh, some air under their wings. And I'm speaking esoteric to two coaches, and I know that you're tracking with this. And to be less esoteric, what I'm trying to say is that we can apply our effort anywhere that somebody also wants to match that effort. And I think intelligently what we want to do is find the things that they can get some momentum and not have them hyper-focus on their weaknesses. And so that's a more of a philosophical, the art of coaching. To use your term, double click, I want to double click on as if I'm a listener and I'm trying to understand, okay, if I need to audit the top of the bottom and then elevate that, how does a person, a listener out there that has aspirations to be at the highest level then take inventory on where their moderate deficiencies lie from an asset-based standpoint and then know how to plug and play resources, whether those resources are compete to create, et cetera, to then level up? That's awesome. You guys are coaches. I, I, I love it. This, the, you're my favorite people here. Okay. So um, actually, you know who my favorite favorite are? Are people that have scraped the bottom of humanity and have picked themselves up with a community and said, I know the dark side of the human experience. And um, they have that humanity, that experience, that kind of thing. And they're able to stand in front of you and be there with you in any experience. Those are my real favorite people. Okay. Where'd I just go? I'm not sure. All right. So back to your question. So how do you do it? Well, first you've got to know what those, let's just make up the number nine skills are. And I'm doing nine because we're breaking it up into thirds and it's a little easier, but so it's a performance model. And I know you guys work from a performance model, but then if you, if you had a a model that you're working from and you have a way to take inventory on technical skills or physical skills or life skills, and the same is true for psychological skills. So here's some of the basic ones. And you could just kind of force rank yourself or even better do, um, was it uh, Bumpa was the first uh, Bumpa? person who did the performance? Yeah. 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 And so what you could just do is make like a pie chart and then put these nine skills in and then you score yourself on them, one to 10. And then- um, We'll do it with it you right now. That, yeah. Are you? Yeah. <laughs> We're doing it with you right But the, here's the gem is that you give it to somebody or two or three people that know you well. So you score yourself and you hold it back. And then if if the three of us were working together, you know, you guys are coaching me up, I'd score myself on these nine and then I'd ask you to score me. And then we kind of like, okay, who wants to go first? <laughs> Drum roll. You know? Yeah, right. Because here's where like insight and blind spots and trusted community members pay dividends. And I got blind spots, right? And I need you to say, uh, first create the relationship and the trust that the things that you're seeing are of value and that you still hold me in high regard, even though my skill might be trash. We need truth tellers. Yeah, that's right. Some people are truth tellers, but they don't give a shit about the person. And they're just trying to get to you know, a performative standard, but the performative standard doesn't falls far short if the humanity doesn't come with them. And I'm going to get to the nine. Hold on, hold, hold on this for a minute, because here's how this works. 
you guys deal with the young talented. The people you work with at one at one point in time were very talented at a young age, for the most part. Would you agree with that? Yeah, mm-hmm. no doubt. Fair. Yep. Right. And so that's that tends to be a common narrative for those who are world class. That means the rest of us. That's okay. You know. But what there's something unique that happens for the young talented is that at ages 12, 13, 14, all the way up to kind of the 20s, early 20s, we're trying to sort out our identity. Who am I? And you know what happens to the young talented? They foreclose on their identity and they say, I am an athlete. So now what's happened is I am an athlete. So every time I go out into the world and demonstrate my athletic prowess, my entire identity is at risk. That's why like performance anxiety is identity anxiety. What is performance anxiety? Right. Really, what is that? You're afraid of what others are going to think about you if it goes sideways. And why would you do that if you're an intact, grown adult and you've got no baggage from your parents? (laughs) Right. You've got no baggage from early coaches and you're an intact. And I mean, integration of being a full adult. What do you care what other people think of you? Why would you get nervous on the first tee? What is that about? And I'm going to say to you right now, you got to really look at some shit if you're getting nervous on T1. You got really examined. Like, and so you guys are going, oh God, where's he going? And what I'm saying is, is it normal to be nervous? It's normal to be nervous if there's a threat. What is the threat? You got to sort that out. Yeah. Perceived or actual threat. Perceived or real, right? Same response. And I don't mean to deviate away from getting back to the nine, but when you said, what is the threat? I immediately went back to 2016, your first presentation where you're talking about Felix Baumgartner. And I went to your podcast with Alex Honnold and I'm thinking, well, there's real threat. That's real danger. That is real threat. Felix Baumgartner jumped from 130,000 feet. First person to be able to potentially experience a transonic experience where his arms and legs are going at one speed and his head and body is crossing this uh, sound barrier and the brightest minds in aerospace. I love you, Felix. The brightest minds in aerospace weren't sure if his arms and legs were going to remain intact as he passes through the sonic boom. This was not just a, a stunt. This was like, we need to know if we're going to get off this planet because we're blowing it. We science needs to know, can we in a high risk maneuver, press the eject button at 130,000 feet you know, for survivability, like what happens to the human body if something goes wrong up there. And so he said, yeah, I'm in. And so that's a whole different kind of uh, conversation, but that's real danger. That's just like the first tee, right? (laughs) My arms are going to rip from my body or I'll hit a shitty shot off the first tee. Same thing. But you know, what's amazing is that the same centers that are operating for those men and women who are, have real danger, whether they're special operators, whether the adventurers in the back country, the pioneers of humanity, whatever it might be, that the same centers in the brain that are working for them to manage the, the gorillas, the saber tooths, the, you know, whatever, it's the same space, the same neurocircuitry for you and I when we walk on stage or walk onto the first platform or whatever. Same circuitry. So this is why we have to train our mind. This is why we have to actually invest in training the mind and not let the frickin', frickin', let, let me slow down, not let our brains win, right? Because if left unchecked, the brain will win. And what is the brain's dictum? Survival. Manipulate your world in the right way to survive. That is the brain's dictum. And it's three pounds of tissue that sits in our skull that is the most beautiful, multidimensional enigma of tissue. And it's amazing what is happening at the brain level. Call that the hardware for an oversimplification and call the software that runs the hardware 
the mind. So now we're going to come back to the nine. Okay, Cameron, we're going to This is going to be like a teaser where yes, people exactly. are going to continue to listen along <laughs> because we've promised them these nine. We'll get there like part four, podcast part four. Um, we're, 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 Gervais is putting us to sleep and Cameron's, you know, you guys are just being kind. So the software runs the hardware. And what's amazing is that there are very clear ways that we can enhance our software. And most people's software, their mind, was kind of installed by their parents. It was patchy, you know, from their, God help me, my friends growing up, like they, they helped my coding. Oh my God. You know, like, so like they, they installed and then like what magazines influenced me and what kind of heroes influenced me. And that's all part of this junkyard kind of patchy buggy software that's running my brain. So when I was a kid, I needed help, right? I had I needed it. I was a young athlete. I had this quote unquote performance anxiety thing where I just couldn't do the thing that I was able to do in non-competitive environments. Like my, my thing was surfing in free surfing. No problems. It was fluid, artistic come competition. I was a disaster. I needed to understand how to train my mind. And so I need how to use my mind. Sorry, stop there. So there's two parts to psychology to oversimplify this. There's self-discovery. Who are you? And then there's skills, mental skills. And the mental skills are sets and reps. Block and tackle, do the reps over and over and over again until you get really good at it. And just like you train squats or train kind of backswing movements or putting or whatever, sets and reps. We can do the same with the mind. It's just invisible, which is what throws people off a little bit. Okay, so training the mind. Let's go back to a skill assessment. Here we are at the nine. Confidence is a skill. Being calm is a skill. Deep focus is a skill. You can train it. Mindfulness is a skill. Optimism, stay with me now, because people start kind of hitting the eject button like, oh God, I knew it. He's going to talk about being positive. No, but optimism is at the center of what we all want, some sort of mental agility, mental toughness, right? So that begins at the epicenter is optimism. I'll explain that in a minute. Knowing how to control what's in your control is a skill. Knowing how to trust yourself is a skill. Pre-performance routines are a skill. Goal setting, vision setting, if you will, is a skill. And mental imagery. Did I say mental imagery? Mm-mm. Pre-performance Yeah, mental routines, imagery yeah. is a skill. So now I would just rank those. And there's a couple others that we didn't mention, but I would rank those. And I'd say, all right, where's my strengths? Give yourself a one to 10 score on each one of them. Put them into thirds. And then have your spouse, have your coach, you know, have your best friend rank them as well and um, see where you stand. And then there's tools for each one of those to train. Like you guys know this, but where's confidence come from? Not past success. Uh-uh, that's a mistake. If you think that you need to have past success to be confident, it's a problem. It's a fundamental flaw in the inner game. And it only comes from one place, which is what you say to yourself. And so, but that self-talk has to be credible. You've had to bend through some real stuff to speak to yourself in a way to say, I can do hard things. And when you earn that right to say, I can do hard things, oh my God, the freedom on the other side of that thing is awesome. So anyways, it's a skill, sets and reps. How do you speak to yourself? And it's got to be credible. So that means you got to do hard shit. Here at Altus, we are proud partners of Titleist, and we want to quickly tell you about our favorite irons, 
Cam and I, along with many of our clients at Altus, are gaming the Titleist T-Series, the engineering ingenuity that has made Titleist the long-standing number one iron on the PGA Tour, delivers three strikingly new iron designs as part of the Titleist T-Series. Powered by breakthrough technology, including max impact for maximum speed and distance control across the face, the new T-Series T100, T200, and T300 models offer a combination of power, performance, playability, and feel, unlike anything Titleist has ever designed. Visit Titleist.com to learn more about the T-Series irons today. There's going to be a lot of, like a cascade. Me and Cameron are going to fight for the microphone here to follow up on what you just said right there. But let's let's talk about the self-talk there, because we've had plenty of really, really high performers that we ask them that question is what is the source of confidence? And the two most common answers that we get from people who have actually achieved, who have, have done extraordinary things, they say, I have evidence. And so I've performed well, that's where I get my confidence or, and, or they say, I've put in the work. And because I put in the work, I know I've earned the right to be confident. And I'll bolt onto that by saying there is a sense of control. There's some certainty is probably a better way to say it. That is a function of the work that they've done to create um, margins of error that are tighter than what maybe they formerly have had. So standing over a golf shot uh, with a knowledge that the ball's likely to behave. And if it doesn't, then the magnitude of miss is known to me. And also the course of correction is also known to me. That gives a person confidence. But you mentioned that the self-talk is more integral than those two pieces. So I would love for you to speak to, because I know that the listeners, we're, we're, we are talking philosophical and we're, we're talking, I, I want to get a little bit more actionable here because the, the epic thought list that you reference and the activity that you have and compete to create, I just, as a coach, I loved that activity that I can point clients to. So maybe in building that library of affirmations that can solve some self-talk that's been destructive in the past and can be a better source of, of confidence, I'd love for you to speak to just that activity of building that, that library. All right. So I'm going to hear you guys and say, I'm nodding my head saying, yep, you're on it. You're right. Yes, yes, yes. And all of that kind of body of work evidence past success stuff has to go through a final filter. And that final filter is your appraisal. And the appraisal, it's a fancy word, you know, and so let me break that apart for just a moment. So you're standing over whatever ball, right? And there's a unique circumstance that you've never been in before, but you've got frames that are close to it maybe, okay? And I love the uniqueness of every moment because you've, you and I've never been in this moment, but we've been in conversations, you know, similar, but we've never been in this one. So when you go back to like golf and you're standing over the ball, you have to make an appraisal based on my body of work, my credible experiences that I are true to me. I'm matching up the demands of the environment against my internal resources that I have right now. Okay. So my internal resources, only part of it is past experience. The other parts are fatigue I might have a you know screwed up stomach. I might have had somebody whisper something in my ear that's kind of throwing me off. It might have this, that, and the other. And so there's this final filter that all of that has to go through. And that is what you say to yourself about yourself in the present moment. And that filter is so powerful and oftentimes so unexamined that people leave it up to kind of chance. 
And so that's where it gets a little wonky, right? And just like in physical and technical training, we front load our, our training so that we can play in, in demanding environments. And you do the same mentally. And I want to give you a really concrete example that I've been fortunate enough, like you guys, to work with the single best in the world. And they've had incredible past success. Medals around their neck, national anthem singing, you know, uh, at the games and whatever, and still walk into their next competitions a bit rattled because they don't really have that mechanism. Confidence is a thin slice of this moment based on my appraisal of the demands and my inner resources. And it all runs through the self narrative, the self talk narrative. And so that can be trained. What you're talking about, like that we do in Compete to Create, is we walk you through four basic steps to get to a place that you can back it up. I mean, that's the final experience is like, can you back up what you say to yourself? And it's super mechanical, like hold back the first two and let's just go to the second two columns here in this four column training experience. The second two are like, what do you say to yourself when you're on point? Just write it down. So go back into your, use your imagination Instead of letting your imagination run, which gets some things for people and some wonderful innovations for others, focus your imagination on what it feels like and what you say to yourself when you're on point. And people that understand the inner game will say, when I'm really on point, I'm not saying anything. Okay, reserve that for flow state right now. Double click under that and say, yeah, when it's good to be you and you're kind of working your game, right? And you haven't gotten to that freeness, that boundless spaciousness that comes with flow state or the zone, what are you saying? And most people have like a go-to and it sounds corny when they say it out loud and they know it sounds corny, but it gives them some kind of juice when they say it to themselves. It's like, I don't know. What do you say to yourself? Be corny for a minute. I, on the putting green today, I asked the question to a, a client and he said, no, what do you say? There's what no one better. Say? Yeah. There's no one better. I'm the best. At it. Yeah. I'm the best. At this. I'm the best there ever was. Right. So like, it sounds so cheesy when we say this stuff out loud, but you know what? It gets your head to nod a certain way, get your body posture, you know, in that right kind of frame. There's a feeling that comes behind your eyes. And when you say that and you're locked into it and you fundamentally believe it because you've got evidence that, you know, you're kind of in that state, then man, it's a very powerful position. So, so write that stuff down. And then for each statement that you make, like no one better, right? Or what was yours, Cameron? That was mine. Best of all time. Yeah, best oh, there yeah. ever was. Best there ever was. Okay. So then if, that, if that's your statement, then next to it have like a little tree that has uh, one, two, and three. And I want to challenge your crew to write down three reasons that give them the right three experiences, I should say, that give them the right to say that. So if I were to say to you, give me a reason why that's true. Like, what have you experienced in your life that you get to say that? And you go, oh, I don't know. Shit ain't real. <laughs> it's just not real. It's not, you know? And so uh, can, can I tell you guys a fun story? Yeah, please. Okay. So I've, you know, just like you guys, you've read some research on confidence and all this stuff and how it works. And I feel blessed to be able to stand on the shoulders or with the shoulders of giants of that have investigated this beautiful science of psychology. And so I'm in the laboratory, the working laboratory with a fighter. He's a UFC athlete. And um, we're going into a championship fight. And as a fun note, I got to corner three championship fights. I never thought I'd say that. I mean, it's, it was awesome. Anyway, so we're going into a fight and um, is early kind of like session 
two, I think it was, in our work together. And we're still feeling feeling it out. And I said, so what's it sound like in your head when it's on point? And he says, I'm a tough motherfucker. I said, oh, wow. I said, okay, that's cool, man. And, and I believed him, right? And I said, uh, we're in this small little office. You know, it was early days for me. And he says, um, I said to him, can you back it up? And he looks at me kind of cockeyed and he says, yeah, I whipped my dad's ass when I was 14. I was like, oh, damn, okay. And so then I said, you got anything else? And he says, yeah, high school, I got jumped. I finished those fools. I was like, ooh. I said, you got anything else? He says, if someone were to ask me one more question, I might just choke that motherfucker out. (laughs) (laughs) And you back that off your high horse. Yeah, right. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I believe you. I believe you. But that's where this kind of thing came from. It's like, it was absolutely 100% in alignment. So what he said was a complete embodiment of his belief system. So when you put this man in a tough situation, he's like, I might not have the right stuff, but I'm a tough MFer. I was like, there you go. So that's how real this thing needs to get. Now, you know, not everybody's physically tough. You know, but do we have the kind of fortitude to deal with, I don't know, the danger of what opinions of others might be? Yeah. Well, let's let's, uh, double click on that again, to use your phrase, the FOPO, fear of other people's opinions. And if that is the, let's say, kryptonite to self-belief, then the antidote clearly is what we've previously discussed of self-talk. But in addition to what's already been discussed Um, we so often sit down with players, whether that player is leveled up from one of the developmental tours to the tour that you get to, the Corn Ferry Tour, before the PGA Tour, or whether they're a junior golfer who's leveling up from something local or regional to the highest of um, junior golf performance, or they're going to college golf. There's this breaking boundaries of comfort, getting to that next level and feeling like you can and will accomplish what you're looking to accomplish. And, And maybe this links to the question I'm asking or the answer to the question I'm asking, but I recall uh, you told a story about a challenge that you laid out to the Seattle Seahawks players to break their boundaries of comfort. Clearly men that are willing to do battle week in, week out against not only their own teammates, but more importantly, those that are coming up against uh, on Sundays. And that challenge was to go out and compliment females unknown to them, strangers, absolute strangers, and you laid down that gauntlet and you were surprised as to the fear and the discomfort that that then, I guess, placed them in. And then you use that as a learning tool to anchor to doing difficult things. And so if leveling up is the difficult thing that we're looking to overcome, then what are best practices for the listeners out there to say, dang, okay, I'm moving from the Corn Ferry Tour to the PGA Tour and I'm playing against the big boys. I'm going to tee it up against against Brooks Kepker and, and DJ next week. What are those skills that someone can use? So I would go back to that nine and say, kind of pick those places that you want to invest in. And then on this this note, I want to kind of add a little tone to the, the, the challenge is the challenge is really about saying something to someone that requires vulnerability by the sayer. So, you know, it could be saying to somebody like, hey, I just want to say that, you know, you've You've just got a real nice, a beautiful grace about you. Or it could be saying to a, you know, a gentleman that you, you haven't met before, like, hey, I just want to, I just want to say that whatever, fill in the blank compliment. And so it, it is about vulnerability is what that challenge is about. And 
but there's also a heightened awareness that we do well before we set people out into the community to talk, to give compliments is really what it's about, is for a bit of a self-discovery to say, hey, how do you think it would go if you say this to another? And oftentimes, you know, there's this thing that we need to pay attention to that alpha competitors look a certain way in sport. And if you're going to come kind of charge it into a coffee shop and kind of give these weird compliments, it can be uber intimidating for people. So there's this social IQ that we're also working on at the same time to make sure that your moment of training isn't at the expense of another person's fear. But it's really about this eloquent exchange where you are demonstrating vulnerability. So that's the real training. Now, to your point about like if somebody is going to go from whatever level to another level is I would actually want to help them with the framing of that. So this is controversial in a way that it's not, there's no science that's going to support what I'm saying here. Okay. But if we're going to go into the Olympic games and there's two ways to approach the games, and let's say we're on day one of the quad, you know, we got four years to train. Do we want to train as if it's the most intense, the wildest show on earth where, and it is a circus. I mean, it's like, it is an outrageous, high electric, distracted, full environment. Like it's like nothing really you've ever seen. And then we prepare to deal with that type of energy. Or do we want to approach the games as if it's, no, it's the same exact conditions. The Let's do volleyball for a minute because I spent a lot of time in volleyball. The net height is the exact same. The ball weight is the exact same. The uh, the court distance is the same with the same number of people on each side of the court, fill in the blanks, right? And so how do we want to go about this? This is philosophical. And if you want to think about the next level up, Cameron, to your point, the next level in um, competition being something very, very special and different because you're on tour with A, B, and C, you know, legend, you got to prepare that way. Because when you see A, B, and C legend, it's likely that if you're not prepared, you're going to become small because you've made them so big. And so there's a long way of saying, I'm a fan of alignment. So I always want to have a deep discussion with somebody about how they want to approach the next uh, kind of phase of their career. But I'm much more, I'm biased to say it's the same freaking conditions. Like the ball weighs the same. Everyone's got the same type of ball unless someone's loaded, you know, some cheating mechanism or whatever. But like you got your shoes, you put them on the same way somebody else put their shoes on, you know, fill in the blanks. And so I'm much more a fan of that. Like I'm sharing space with other people, but I'm not competing against them. I'm competing with me to get right when I'm walking and get right when I'm standing over the ball and get right when I'm, you know, about to swing and get right uh, on my evaluation process after the swing. And I'm just working to get right. And what does that mean? I'm just working to be present. And you know what? If you two guys are kind of, you know, ripping the, the stick in an amazing way, that's not my business now. I'm not swimming in your lane and you're not swimming in my lane. That's not my business. I would say, actually, you're not going to like this because I'm going to be bold for a minute. That's actually kind of weak. It's a weak part of the game to know what everyone else's score is. And it's hard not to. I get it. But you can't control it. So what I've learned from people who are committed to this path of mastery is that they are uncommon with doubling down and tripling down on working on mastering what's in their control. And all the other stuff is noise.
as I hear you describe that, I'm trying to picture my clients that are the, the golfers that we know, the athletes that would respond that way. I'm picturing the most confident clients that we have. And we spoke a little bit to that source, but also the optimistic clients, the clients that I know when they walk in there, they're expecting their best. And you mentioned when you when you mentioned the skills, you qualified it a little bit when you mentioned optimism was, okay, now the sports psychologist is going to talk to us about thinking positively. But again, when, when we filter through the most successful players that we've worked with and talked to, there's just this bulletproof and relentless optimism that they have where they face adversity, something happens, and they are, it's amazing how quickly they shrug it off as no big deal. Or they'll even come up with a reason that this is why that happened. It certainly wasn't because of me or my performance. Mm-hmm. And because Frickin of that coach, we, yeah, exactly. caddy, the coach is the caddy, yeah. you know, some other source. my, my yeah. sticks are off. Yeah, exactly. Totally. And so yeah. because we, I, I, I love that there's a section to compete to create that is dedicated to that optimism, but you're really careful to make a distinction between naive optimism. And so I would love for you to share that with the listener now to make sure that we know the differences between those two, because I think it's really important. Yeah. So let's just kind of square up that optimism is, you know, in the most colloquial way, optimism is this fundamental belief that it's going to work out. That's what optimism is. Something good's going to happen. So optimism is the lens that you see your future through. Okay. There's only two lenses, optimism and pessimism. And people say, no, 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 I'm a realist. What does that mean? You know, like it's void of positivity or optimism and pessimism. No, you can be a realist pessimist. (laughs) You can be a realist optimist. And you can also be a naive optimist. A naive optimist is this fundamental belief that it's going to work out without work. So the most kind of crushing example of this and you guys have probably seen it up close, which is horrific, but I just want to make a, a sensitive but a clear point here is that this mechanism is why we stay in battered rela- or abusive and potentially battered relationships. Because this thought like, if my wife was abusive, which she's not, she's just Cuban. It's a joke. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, but like, uh, no, all, in all seriousness, I, I love my wife and I love Cubans, <laughs> is that if, say, she was abusive... And I'm like, you know what? It's okay. She told me she's going to change. And then it happens again. I say, you know what? It's, it's, okay. it's okay. It's okay. Like, you know, she said she's going to change, but she hasn't gone to therapy. She hasn't read a book. She is doing all the same type of stuff, you know, and there's no real work happening. It would be naive for me to think that it's going to kind of change. And so that's naive optimism in the most kind of dramatic way I can think about it. And authentic, real optimism is like, Okay, shit's going to work out now, but I got to give all of me to it. This is not how I planned it. (laughs) This is not the imagery I was doing, you know, last week. This is not it. It is not going according to plan. I'm going to stay in it. I'm going to fight. I'm going to bite down. I'm going to drop my hips. I'm going to get to the present moment as best as I possibly can because I believe two things. One, stuff works out. Two, I am an agent in my life. I have agency. I can make a difference because I have efficacy. I'm being super psychobabble right now. But agency is this idea that you have influence in your world. So you're not at the whip's end of the conditions of the environment, but you actually have something about you. You can use your mind and you can adjust 
in a way that actually can move an environment. You can take care of yourself in ways that are aligned with your core values. Now, pause there for a moment. Core values are really important. And again, okay, here's the sports psych talking about values. It's bigger than that. Because if you don't have clarity of your first principles in life, you actually will do what the brain wants you to do, which is to be liked by others. Because the most dangerous threat we have right now is not the saber tooth, it's other people's opinions. Yes, there are dangerous, physically dangerous humans across the planet. Yes, that is true. Cars are dangerous too, you know? But for most of us, the most dangerous, the thing we feel the most is that threat of what they might think of us because if we fall short of grace, we're kicked out of the tribe, and that is a real threat to existence. So let's go back up to optimism here, is if you don't kind of condition yourself, then the brain will win, which is just trying to be liked, just trying to fit in. And if you've got first principles, like now, that is not how I'm going to go through life. My first principles are like creating a masterpiece. It's a first principle for me. A first principle for me is regard for others. It's a first principle. I might step on your shoe, but you know what? I'm going to try to leave a shine. You know, I, I, I might get down on my hands and knees and shine it up as best as I can. And so all that being said, first principles are really important. Then you layer on top of this, this idea that, you know what? It works out now. Things work out. Why would you believe that you can go the distance if you don't have, I'm going to go to that next big word, efficacy? So what does efficacy mean? power, self-power. And as you guys well recognize, there are four ways that you can train from a scientific perspective. Albert Bandura, game changer psychologist, uh, one of the legends and titans in our field, said, here's how you do it. Here's how you level up uh, your efficacy, your efficaciousness, which is your self of your sense of self-power. So it's I'm saying all these kind of things to you right now because it's like the Panama Canal. It's this interlocking ecosystem of the mind that needs to work in tandem with craft and needs to work in tandem with your body, your shell, your, your, your carriage. And if I oversimplify this right now to answer your point, optimism is a simple little thing to build, which is like, yeah, I'm going to make a choice right now to find what's good. That's it. I'm going to make a choice to train my mind to just be relentless to find what's good. Because you know what? Best of the best of the best. You guys know this. They really do have this fundamental belief it works out. It's what keeps us in the fight. Going from whip's end to holding the handle and exploring, clearly I am well aware of um, maybe how you would define mindfulness, but for the purpose of informing the listeners that may not have heard the term or may have heard the term, but they treat it with the esoteric nature that uh, kind of comes with that term, how would you, def you define mindfulness and where would you point people to develop that as a core skill? And then how, lastly, uh, how interconnected is that with the skill of deep focus? Beautiful. I know you guys know the answers here, <laughs> but I love the I love the layup. All right. So mindfulness is a particular way of engaging on purpose in the present moment. That's what mindfulness is. And there's two components to mindfulness. It's awareness and wisdom. And so awareness of what? Awareness of four things. Awareness of your thoughts, awareness of your emotions, awareness of your body sensations and awareness of the unfolding environment around you. So if you wanna invest in your psychological, your mental, your inner life, awareness is tier zero. It's the first 
place to be because without awareness, it's really hard to get good at anything. You know, like you don't know what's up. If you don't know you're speaking to yourself in ways or you don't know that your body's responding in a like a, a manner of being threatened, it's really hard to course adjust. So mindfulness is really about awareness, one. And then with greater awareness, you end up spending more time in the present moment. When you spend more time in the present moment, that's where like high performance is expressed. It's where wisdom is revealed. It's where things, all things that are good and true and beautiful and amazing are experienced. So the present moment is the keyhole. If you want to oversimplify kind of how this inner game works, it's all of the practices to get you to the present moment more often so that you can eloquently adjust to the demands of the environment, or you can eloquently adjust to the alignment of the man or woman or person you want to be, period. The keyhole is the present moment. That requires training of the mind, and mindfulness is one of those massive accelerants for it. We could go on about like how to train the mind, but there's great resources in the world. There's, there's cool little apps. I'd like to oversimplify and say, you don't need an app. They're cool. Simply set a timer or not, but set a timer, let's say for a minimum, if we follow science, eight minutes is a minimal dose and 20 minutes is more ideal from a science, hardcore science perspective. But set a timer, let's say for eight minutes and just freaking follow one breath at a time with all of your essence and do it without critique and judgment when your mind wanders. One thing that resonated with me when I first heard you many years back talk about this was the skill is in course correcting when you do deviate from being in that present state of mind. So if you want to continue to pull on that thread or that let that be the closure to it, I don't, I don't mind. No, yeah, you're right on there, which is, I mean, when you think about it, the moment you recognize you're off task, you know, and what does that mean? Like if we're just talking about focusing on your breathing, and you've made a commitment to focus all of your essence on your inhale with all of your might, all of your volition, all of your focus on the inhale. And then you're going to do the same thing on the exhale. And by the time you get to the middle of your exhale, you're thinking about, am I doing this thing right? <laughs> My left butt cheek is kind of tight. You know, like, you're, oh, okay. So as soon as you recognize you're there, celebrate because you're actually recognizing that's awareness training. It's like, oh, I caught my mind. Oh, it's not where I want it to be. And then you refocus back to the next inhale, let's say. That's it. That's the work. As far as other like other exercises that feel almost like meditation and that require that deep focus, and this is one I'm bringing up when I'm looking at the timer and I'm seeing that we're, we're already past where we wanted, where we told you we were going to, how much time we were going to ask of you. And we're leaving a lot on the table here. So we're going to request. So we're stealing and we're stealing some more. Yeah, we're going to request. <laughs> I, that, I, I ramble. Sorry, fellas. Two. No, no. Yeah, we're, we're, we're absolutely engaged. And I know that our listeners will be too. But now I'm going to ask one of those questions that I can't let you get off because it's just selfishly, because it's something that Cameron and I are talking a lot about the value of mental rehearsals, of visualization, of a way to prime ourselves to perform in a certain way. And, and you know, we even have the conversations with us as coaches. Each time that we get on the lesson tee or a practice tee, that's a performance for us. And we need to be able to know and be ready to perform at our very best. But especially when we're talking to a client that has an event that creates some kind of anticipation, some pressure, some apprehension, we want them to be primed for that moment when it really, really counts. And so I'm really intrigued by making sure that our clients, our listeners understand what does the process look like 
to put in a mental rehearsal to not just in the moment, you know, in golf, we talk a lot about, all right, in your pre-shot routine, let's visualize. I'm talking about the night before the day before let's go through this moment. One, if we're going to recommend that as a useful activity, what does it look like? How do we do it? It's a skill, right? And so let's start with the skill piece first, which is when you close your eyes and you use your imagination, can you see the thing in color? Can you control it and manipulate it and see it from multi-dimensions? Can you taste it and feel it? Can you create such a lifelike image that it feels real? And it's like really difficult to break away from it. It's so compelling. That's the skill. And it takes time to get to that place. Can you do it in real time, mid time, slow time? You know, like, can you do a full swing in 20 seconds? And can you do it in you know, half a second, right? However long it takes for one full swing. So there's a real skill here, but the the concept, and it takes time to practice with it. Uh, Three-year-olds are better at it than most adults, right? Because they're using their imagination a lot. But I'll share two concepts. One is Hicks and Gracie. You might not be familiar with him, but he's a legend in the fighting world, like literally a legend. And he says, oh, imagery. He's Brazilian, thick accent. And he says, oh, imagery. It's the most beautiful movie I could ever see. And I'm starring in it. (laughs) And he kind of gives this kind of laugh, you know? I'm working with, at one point, the fastest man alive. And he goes, my wife, we're talking about imagery. He goes, oh, my wife thinks I have a problem. I go, what's that? And he says, well, I do my imagery in the shower. And she doesn't really believe that I'm in there doing imagery. (laughs) All right. All right. I get you. He goes, but I love it. Like, I can't, like, I'm enthralled by it. It's like what I'm trying to work on. And then I had Bob Bowman on Finding Mastery podcast, and he's Michael Phelps coach. And we're talking about imagery. And this is going into the 2008 games when he just had so many crushing world records that he broke. So we're talking about imagery. And he goes, you know, Michael does, he's really skilled at imagery. And he spends, you know, it's like an 80-20 rule. And he spends 80% of his time really seeing success come to life. The way he is in the ready room, the way he warms up, the way he's walks onto the blocks, the way he shakes his arms, like he's just spending a lot of time, the way he finishes, the way, the way he dives, the way he turns, the way he finishes the whole thing. And he's he's skilled at it. And, and so that leads me to say, like, okay, what's he doing the other 20% of the time? And he's seeing adversity. Now, for the pop psychology folks, the folks that bought Hook, Lang, and Sinker, the, if you see it, you're going to make it happen. (laughs) I'm sorry, uh, I can't help you here because there's no science that's going to support your (laughs) pop psychology belief system. But I'm going to give you some counter evidence to that right now. One of the best in the world spent 20% of his time doing mental imagery, seeing adversity, putting himself in a compromised situation. And so he wanted to know what it would be like if his goggles filled up with water. So he spent time doing it, sorting it out, figuring it out, dealing with that, you know, that kind of flood and the whole thing. And sure enough, in the 2008 games, his goggles filled up with water. Now, you're probably saying, wait, you just said that if you see it, it won't happen. Maybe that's what happened. To I'm telling you, this, don't stand on that. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> be afraid to have thoughts. You'll just be afraid to have thoughts because... You know, we got to sort shit out. Okay, so his goggles famously fill up and instantly, guess what? He had a frame of reference for it. He didn't, you know, he's got really long arms. So his panic button is really far away from him. But so he didn't hit that panic button. He stayed the the course because he had reps at it. 
I had a very similar experience working with a, a different fighter where um, we were seeing him putting himself in a compromised situation. And it was a triangle choke where he was being choked by another athlete's legs. Obviously, you can imagine it's an end game position. And it was scary for him, as it should be. And he just he saw over and over and over again himself doing the right technique under duress and posturing out of it, as as the technique is called. Sure enough, during the fight, lights are on, 16,000 people want to see blood, you know, a million people watching. And guess where he ends up? Triangle choke. That happens to be the best skill of his comp- opponent. There's a high chance it was going to happen. Guess what he had in his back pocket? Lots of frames of reference on how to posture up. And you know what's cool about it? Talk about Felix Baumgartner jumping out of space. I won't say the number, but can you imagine how many times, because you only get one chance at doing what he did. Can you imagine how many times he would spend seeing and experiencing success, you know, and sorting out if things go wrong in his mind before he does it? And I'm not talking about like walking your dog, seeing it or driving your car, thinking about it. That's not how you would train somebody to do a putting routine or a putting practice. You know, why don't you think about, why don't you practice putting when you're just kind of talking to your buddies? No, you need a disciplined, focused, relentless, uncommonly committed mind to see these images and bring them to life in a beautiful way. It's actually an overused word like, oh, I do imagery, but the skill of it is actually quite rare. And so, um, yeah, I share a couple of stories that are fun. The science is there uh, to support the whole thing. And I would encourage you guys to do it as professionals that are working to be your very best. People who want to be a great parent, people who want to be a great whatever, uh, their very best. It's a great asset. And I mean, that's the for activities like that and for insights like that are the reasons why we've enjoyed your podcast. We've enjoyed finding mastery for a long time, because like you said, it's not just sport. It's not just coaching. It's, it's life, it's parenting. And obviously our, our ethos as coaches at Altus align a lot with yours. We've enjoyed pointing people to finding mastery and big thanks for putting together compete to create, because I think it does a really, really good job of collecting a lot of those ideas and concepts in one place providing the science that's underpinning them, and then also providing some actionable, hey, here's what you need to go do to actually take action on this. And so now that's where we will certainly point our listeners to in addition to finding mastery. Yeah. So, and then we're going to point them to the second and third installment of this one, where we get to ask (laughs) the rest of the questions (laughs) that we we want to ask you, man. Same time. Yeah. So we're we're really appreciative of the work that you've done and for the time spent with us, man. Hey, listen, you guys are legends. I was so stoked to do this with you. And so you're making a, a difference in the lives of people. And, you know, my favorite part of this conversation and your other podcasts is that you're real, you're authentic, you're real, you know, you're you're not flowering it up or trying to be something other than an explorer of human potential. And it comes through. And that authentic nature is, you know, we know this from psychology is that upwards to 75% of all real change that happens people is the rapport and the relationship. It's not the tactics and the skills and the tools. It's that space that we hold between each other that creates the most dynamic change. And so I would imagine if you guys are average, I'm not saying you are average on skill development, the way that you present and engage with people is this magnificent, you know, flywheel effect of them feeling safe and seen and like on it from a a perspective. So awesome, I appreciate y'all. Brilliant, Mike. Thank you much. 
Thanks for listening to this episode. If you want to learn more about Altus Performance, go check out altusperformance.com. We're also pretty active on Instagram, so follow at Altus Performance, and you can also follow on Twitter at Team Altus. If you haven't done so, please hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcast, leave a review, share it with others, and be sure to stay tuned to future episodes of Earn Your Edge. Thanks for listening.